We're going to be focusing most of our attention on verses 2 and 3, but we'll get there in a moment. Four years ago, one of our Hennepin District Court judges was censured for ten engagements with a 26-year-old prostitute. Last week, another judge was removed from office for having sex with 15 male prostitutes. One of the state Supreme Court justices had to abstain from the consideration of that decision because he's being investigated by the Board of Standards for ethical investigations and violations. It wasn't a good week for the Minnesota judiciary. And it goes a long way to encouraging citizen suspicion that there's rottenness all through our system. But what I want to illustrate from these happenings this morning is the meaning of the word worthy. We might say the judge was not worthy of his judgeship. Or we might use the adverb and say he did not live a life worthily of his high calling as judge in the Hennepin District Court. And what I would mean if I said that was that the office of judge is worth more than it got from him. It deserves better from the man who was filling the position. The judgeship deserved a better man. Now note, even though I said the man was not worthy of his judgeship, what I mean to call attention to is the value of the position, the honor and the esteem that that position should have invested him with. And it didn't, and it brought the position into disrepute and the man. The Supreme Court decision read like this last week. By disclosing his identity and his judicial position to the prostitutes, moreover, he made even greater the risk of discredit to himself and to the judiciary. In other words, the honor and value of his position should have been worth so much to him that he would not dare to risk bringing it into disrepute. The greatness of his calling should have constrained him to lead a life worthy of his call, but it didn't. And therefore, not only he, but worse, the Hennepin County District Court has been brought into disrepute. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1, and you'll see that Paul uses language that should not be unfamiliar to us, and I hope won't be misunderstood in view of this analogy. He urges the Christians to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I don't think he means try your best to deserve the status that you have in God's favor. I think he means try your best to see how much the status you have in God's favor deserves from you. 
Try to see what effect your calling should have on your life and behavior. And if we go back to the first three chapters of this book, we can just hop through it and see amazing high points of this calling. Let me do that with you, starting in chapter 1, briefly. Chapter 1, verse 4. The first thing about our calling is that God chose us for Himself before the foundation of the world. The second thing, verse 5, He predestined us to be His children. And that means heirs of all that our Father owns. Verse 7 in chapter 1, He sent Christ to atone for all our trespasses so that everything you do, wrong, past and future, Christ has paid for if you trust in Him. Verse 13, He sealed us with His Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. Chapter 2, verse 7, He lavishes on us now for all eternity. Or you might say, He promises to spend a whole eternity increasing your joy in the inexhaustible riches of His grace. It's going to take an eternity for you to exhaust the joy that can be had in the riches of God's grace, and He promises it to us there in verse 7. And then the amazing mission of the church in chapter 3, verse 10. You couldn't ask for a higher calling than this, it seems to me, in terms of mission. We are going to display God's wisdom even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The church is the showcase of the wisdom of God. You are appointed to display to the heavenly places how wise, how strong, how loving God is. Or as it says in chapter 1, verse 12, we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of His glory. Now, without any exaggeration, the least we can say is this. Our Christian calling is greater than the privilege and purpose of the calling of a Hennepin County District Court judge. The judgeship is a calling from man. Ours is a calling from God. The judgeship should confer upon a man status and hopefully it should confer upon him a sense of worthy achievement. Our calling confers upon us divine sonship. Heirs of all that is the judgeship will last maybe a couple decades, and our calling, it will last forever. Therefore, if, as the Supreme Court said last week, the honor and the privilege of being district court judge should have constrained his behavior so that he honored his position through his life, how much more should our position in the calling of God constrain our behavior so that we lead a life that brings no disrepute upon His name? Now verse 3 here in Ephesians 4 says that the, the life that does that is basically a life in the church in unity. It says maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And verse 2, I think, describes how to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. But before we look at the how, let's make sure we understand what this unity is. And I get the definition, first of all, by looking a few verses down the page to verses 11, 12, and 13 here in chapter 4, where it says that Christ has given to the church some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain, and then here's the key phrase, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now one of the differences, maybe you noticed, between verse 3 and verse 13 is that in verse 3 the unity is to be maintained and in verse 13 it is to be attained. And that might incline you to think, well, there are two very different kinds of unity in the church. And I think that would probably be a mistake. Rather, I think what that indicates is that in one sense... Our unity in the church is finished. It is completed. God did something to achieve it at Calvary. It's fixed. But in another sense, we must go on and work it out in real life and make it a fact in experience. I get that by looking back at chapter 2, verse 13. If you want to look back there with me. At chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. And then notice how he puts this, who has made us both one. That is, Jew and Gentile are in fact, through the death of Christ, made one in the church and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments, ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. That text, it seems to me, shows that in a decisive act of atonement, Christ accomplished our unity and it is achieved. And in that sense, we can talk about maintaining it. But in another sense, It is yet to be worked out in actual experience at Bethlehem Baptist Church and it's fitting, therefore, in another place that Paul should say press on to attain its full expression. Now, if that's true, if there's just really one unity here and not two, then we can define it, I think, from these verses. And I see three things in this unity that we should have in common. The first two I get from chapter 4, verse 13 where Paul says that there is to be a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So I describe this as saying we should have common convictions about Christ. Common convictions. And then I skipped over the little phrase, unity of the faith. And I don't take that to mean the objective truths of the faith, because then it would be the same thing as the knowledge of Christ. I think that means faith. Trust, And so the second thing that should characterize our unity is common confidence in the Lord Jesus. And then the third thing that should characterize our unity comes from the text we read back in chapter 2, verse 14, where it says that Christ has put an end to the hostility in the church. Now, what's the opposite of hostility? Love or care. And so to keep the three C's so that you can remember them, a common care.
care for each other. So it seems to me you can sum up Christian unity from these several chapters by saying Christian unity is having a common conviction or common convictions about Christ, a common confidence in Christ, and common care for one another in the body of Christ. So that's, I think, what it is. And now, notice he calls it in verse 3, the unity of the Holy Spirit, or the unity of the Spirit. And if you've been tracking over the weeks with me, in these lessons on the Holy Spirit, it shouldn't be too hard to see why he says that this is a unity of the Spirit. Common convictions. Isn't it the Holy Spirit, in view of what we saw last week, isn't it the Holy Spirit that takes away our irrational and self-defensive prejudices that opens us and makes us willing to embrace those common convictions about Christ? A lot of people hear the convictions presented, but they resist them. And if we embrace them and we become one in our common convictions about the Lord, it's because the Holy Spirit is humbling us and opening us to receive them. Common confidence. Where, according to Romans 8.16, does our confidence come from to say, Abba, Father, you're my Father and I'm your child? The witness of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us a common confidence. And where does the common concern or love come from? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. So it's not the least surprising that Paul should say, Christian unity is the unity of the Spirit. It's made by the Spirit. It's stamped by the character of the Holy Spirit. And so now, let's do perhaps the most practically important thing, and that is ask, how do we achieve it, maintain it, attain it here at Bethlehem? Verse 2. I see two stages of love here in this verse. Neither of them is natural for human beings, but both of them are from the Holy Spirit and therefore produce the unity of the Spirit. The first stage is called lowliness and meekness. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called in all lowliness and meekness. Isn't it strange that the knowledge of our high, high calling should make us feel deeply lowly. Christian lowliness is a disposition to feel lowly in ourselves and very highly about Jesus Christ. To view ourselves as low and Christ as high is the essence of Christian humility. Christian meekness is the demeanor of life that comes from a person who has lowliness of spirit. Precisely because he has been granted to know God, the Christian man views himself as lowly. He regards, for example, his knowledge as lowly and small because he's seen the omniscience of God. He regards his his righteousness as small and lowly because he has seen the Holy One of Israel. And he regards his strength as lowly and small because he has seen the omnipotent God. How could anybody be enamored by his own wisdom or strength or righteousness if he keys off of God 
That's the problem in our world today. People don't key off of God. We are not a God-saturated, God-oriented people. We are a man-oriented and a man-saturated people. And therefore, we feel very proud about our relative superiorities. But an ant down on 8th Street, measuring himself by the IDS tower, will not boast over the flea. But he will if he just looks at fleas and other ants. Christian lowliness makes a person feel awkward receiving praise. Christian lowliness makes a person recoil at the contemporary counsel of self-assertiveness and self-esteem and self-confidence. The great delight of the Christian lowly man is delight in the unmerited free mercy of God. All his longings are satisfied in God. God is his esteem. God is his confidence. God is the one who someday is going to assert himself on behalf of those who are poor in spirit and who will make the last first. And in the meantime, the person who is lowly, will be the servant of all. If the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see the majesty of God's holiness, you don't have any trouble feeling lowly and minute. The second stage of love in this verse 2 results from the first. And Paul describes it with two words, and the first one is patience. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness, with patience. Lowliness is the prerequisite of patience. Haughty people are not patient. The more highly you think of yourself, the more quickly you think people should serve you. Who do they think they are keeping me waiting like this? And the more lowly you think of yourself, the less inappropriate it will seem when you are not treated like a dignitary. If you have a disposition of lowliness, you won't feel strange when you are not treated like a hero. And when the fruits of your labor, say in child-rearing, are slow in coming. If you have seen the majesty of God's holiness, you know your own minuteness and sinfulness. And you don't presume upon anybody to treat you highly. And if you have seen the grace of God that saved a wretch like me, then you know two things. You know that God will give you strength to wait whatever you have to wait for. And secondly, you know that God will turn every delay of your life, whether it's 50 years of waiting in vain for a marriage partner or five minutes of waiting for the doctor after you've dialed 911, 
You can have the confidence in the grace of God that He is going to turn every single delay in your life into a strategic work of victory in your character and for His glory. One other word Paul uses to describe the results of lowliness, and that is the word forbearance. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness, with patience forbearing one another. And another word for forbearance is enduring one another. Meekness is the demeanor of the lowly man. Endurance or forbearance is the demeanor of the patient man. And I'm very glad, and I know you are too, that Paul said, endure one another. What that does for us is free us from the hypocritical need to think that I or anyone else is perfect. When he says, endure one another, he's openly admitting, I'm not trying to tell perfect people how to get along, I'm trying to tell imperfect people how to get along. Perfect people do not have to endure one another. Only we do. We are the ones who need to be forgiven and endured. Paul is not the least naive. He knows that at Bethlehem there are some grumpy people and there are some critical people and there are some unreliable people and there are some finicky people. He knows that the pastor has gaping holes in the fabric of his sanctification and so his counsel is not to perfect people. It is simply to Bethlehem and Conference Baptists to tell them how they can maintain the unity of the Spirit rotten as we tend to be. And his answer is lowliness. How can you keep caring about a person who doesn't like you? How do you go on keeping on caring about people who don't like the same kind of worship songs you do? Or structure the service differently than the way you would? Or don't like the way you cut your grass or what you wear or the way you fix your desk at work? People who oppose you and frustrate your dreams. How do you go on caring for them? Paul's answer, be lowly in spirit and you will be able to patiently endure them in love. And if you are not lowly, you will not. Remember, Jesus told a parable about a, an unforgiving servant who'd been forgiven a million dollar debt and uh, very unlowly he walked out of that room and wrung the neck of the guy who owed him $10. Feeling the debt we owe God is the only way to keep from wringing each other's neck. If you forget about your lowliness, about your minuteness, about the heaviness of the debt that was resting on you, and how it was by sheer grace that you were delivered from that, you will never treat another person with grace. And if you don't, then the God who called us into His kingdom and glory 
will be far more discredited than the Minnesota judiciary was by homosexual prostitution in one of its judges. And that's a terrifying thing. To bring the name of God into such disrepute by our refusal to be lowly and meek and patient and forbearing. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let's let's not be haughty. Let's be lowly. Open your eyes to the majestic holiness of God. Let's not be impatient, but patient and forgiving of one another. And when the Holy Spirit works that in us, then the God who called us from darkness into light will not be disgraced, but rather greatly honored by the unity that we've maintained. May the Lord do it among us here at Bethlehem.